1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're transforming the political landscape in this country. And as usual, we have an outstanding panel today. Returning to the roundup is Susan Del Percio, a political strategist and crisis communications consultant and MSNBC political analyst. Good morning and welcome back, Susan. Good morning. Great to be with you. Also returning is Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist and tech founder and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's always great to have you back.
2: Great to be here again, you guys.
1: And making his politicology debut is Michael Zeldin. Michael is a former CNN legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor with extensive experience in white-collar crime, including money laundering. He is also the host of the podcast, That Said, with Michael Zeldin. Michael, welcome to The Roundup. Thanks so much for having me. On today's show, we're going to discuss some new developments in the prosecution of the insurrectionists involved in the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the racism and revisionism Republicans are using to whitewash and memory hole the attack. We'll talk about the escalating humanitarian crisis at our southern border and how it's shaping the early days of the Biden administration. And finally, we'll examine how the prosecution is coming together for the case against Trump and his associates' alleged financial and election-related crimes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person.
1: So let's start with an update on the insurrection prosecutions. On Monday, the Washington Post reported that federal authorities have arrested and charged two men with assaulting U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick during the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. And Sicknick, as we know, died in the aftermath of the assault, though one of the biggest challenges in prosecuting the Capitol attack has been nailing down the cause of his death, as there has been no definitive ruling thus far on how how he died, or whether anyone would or could be held accountable. And according to a Capitol Police statement from January 7th, Sicknick was injured while physically engaging with protesters, and he later collapsed after he had returned to his office following the riot. Now, it's two months later, and we still don't know the results of Officer Sicknick's autopsy, nor do we have a publicly stated cause of death. And the indictment against these two individuals does not go so far as to say they caused his death, which would have allowed for even more significant charges to be brought against them. And both of the arrested suspects have each been charged with nine counts, including assaulting three officers with a deadly weapon, civil disorder, and obstruction of a congressional proceeding, charges that would carry up to 20 years in prison, according to the Post. So, Michael, I'd love to start with you here, because there's an interesting wrinkle to this civil disorder charge, which prosecutors have brought against more than 60 of the Capitol rioters so far. And there has been sharp criticism from the defense lawyers and public defenders and progressives about the Justice Department's use of this same charge. Uh, which stems from, as I understand it, a 1968 statute to prosecute those accused of violence in connection with last year's racial justice protest. So can you help us understand this law and what its origin is and why it's being used against the Capitol rioters and why it's so controversial?
3: Sure. So this law, section 231 of the United States Code, 18 U.S. Code, is what was referred to as the civil obedience law. It was put into the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1968 by uh, Russell Long, the Louisiana senator who was an avowed um, segregationist, and it was intended to be a mechanism by which prosecutions could be made of civil disobedience, Dr. King and his followers and, and, and others. And It was never really thought to be um, a a useful tool because no one would bring such a prosecution. But nonetheless, there it sits, this civil obedience law uh, to charge civil disobedient people, people who were exercising their First Amendment right of free speech and assembly and uh, redress of grievances against the government. Now, this statute is being resurrected. It was... Um, not used much at all, except in the anti-war demonstrations by the Nixon administration. And now they've resurrected it, the Barr administration in justice resurrected it to use against the protesters in Portland, Oregon, the Antifa, uh, Black Lives Matter protesters. And so you can't miss the sort of irony or the, the tragedy of using a law that was stuck in by a segregationist to the Civil Rights Act so that people like Dr. King and his followers could be prosecuted for interfering with the police who were interfering with their right to to protest. And, and here we are with the statute um, being challenged as to its constitutionality, um, but nonetheless, charges have been brought against multiple people um, under this statute. And That's true not only for the Portland, Antifa, and Black Lives Matter protesters, but similarly in the January 6th Resurrectionist um, cases. Hmm. So the language
1: in the statute is aimed at preventing interference with um, any federally protected function. And the cases from the summer established federal jurisdiction by claiming the crimes took place during protests that interfered with interstate commerce, according to Politico. So how strong is that claim compared to an attack on the Capitol to stop the certification of electoral votes?
3: Well, it's a great question. The the way the federal law versus the state law overlays is that State crime is the first set of crimes that one would bring in the normal course. That is, if someone assaulted a police officer or destroyed property, then you would be charged under the state law. You're only chargeable under federal law if that implicates interstate commerce, commerce between the, the states. Most people argue that these types of crimes were intrastate within one state and therefore Only state law should be prosecuted. In Portland, I think, it's a much stronger case that this was intrastate commerce, and therefore this statute should not be constitutionally allowed to be used against the Antifa Black Lives Matter um, defendants. In the insurrectionist case, it's a harder case to say that shutting down the federal government does not implicate interstate Commerce because after all the members of Congress are from all states they gather in this one location they are certifying the votes from their multiple states and so I think it's a, a stronger constitutional case in the um, January 6th than it is in the Black Lives Matters, Antifa prosecutions. So
1: it, essentially, it's a stretch to think that this statute could be used effectively against the BLM and Antifa protesters, but it actually probably is quite suitable
3: for the insurrectionists. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And, and I think that what's important is to make sure that there is an understanding that these two categories of protesters, the Antifa, Black Lives Matters versus the January 6th insurrectionists, are not equivalent. They, they, these are not equivalent actors, and so you—it's harder to say. Well, what's good for one is good for the other, uh, because of the nature of the activity that was being undertaken in each of the separate uh, locations. So yes, absolutely. This is a more appropriate used statute, if you want to use it at all, which I wouldn't right. use, right. against the January six people than against the Portland people. So just one more follow-up question to that. What do you think
1: we will see in terms of, how do you think this is going to play out, the prosecutions against both of these
3: groups, although, as you mentioned, they're not equivalent? So the defense attorneys in the Portland cases, and this is being used against others in other jurisdictions where there were Black Lives Matters, Antifa-type protests, initially the defendants will attempt to have the indictments thrown out on procedural grounds, meaning the statute is unconstitutional. If they lose, then there'll be a trial on the merits where they'll have to defend themselves against the accusation that they engaged in civil disobedience in violation of the terms of this statute. All right, so
1: speaking of the differences between these two groups, I want to talk about Ron Johnson. (laughs) <laughs> Susan and Lucy. It's been upsetting, though unsurprising, to watch Republicans and especially proponents of this big lie that the election was stolen, and those sympathetic to the terrorists' cause try to minimize and downplay our understanding of what happened on January 6th, Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican from Wisconsin who seems to find his way into this show with some regularity, talked candidly about how the insurrectionists make him feel on a radio show last week. Let's take a listen. I knew those were people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to to break a law. And so I wasn't concerned. Now, had the tables been turned, Joe, this could be in trouble. Had the tables been turned, and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. Despite admitting on the air, this could get me in trouble, Senator Johnson said on Monday in a response to the backlash, quote, It has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with riots. I completely did not anticipate that anybody could interpret what I said as racist. It's not. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal making the same claim. So, Susan, (laughs) help us think through how does Senator Johnson, literally saying the quiet part right into a microphone, help Republicans whitewash what happened on January 6th and the dangers members of Congress of both parties, mind you, faced?
4: Yeah, it's there's an interesting point that you talk about when it switches from what Ron Johnson did as a racist and how what the legislature, the Republicans in the legislature are trying to do to kind of whitewash the whole event of January 6th. Ron Johnson, you know what? At this point, we know what he is. And I'm actually happy he had basically admitted he was a racist on air. We have it. We know what he is. You can't play around it. When he speaks, you know from which le- which uh, voice he speaks from. And it's clear cut. Uh, I almost wish more pe- more uh, people would do that. So we knew exactly where they stood. But. What the Republicans are doing right now, especially in the House, and I think we see it more in the House as a legislative effort where they prevented honoring one of the officers the other day, um, a piece of legislation going forward that just simply honored the person who saved their lives because they didn't like the word insurrectionist in it. That, to me, is just disgraceful how they cannot honor the people that saved their lives. And that's where the Republicans are going. They're trying to erase this part of their history. You can't, but they will try because what's happening right now? What are they doing? Nothing. If they're not talking about that, they're talking about Mr. Potato Head. Those are the only things they have. They're not delivering anything to their constituents. So they are trying to rewrite their history because they know how bad it looks.
1: So Lucy, I want to look at this from a bigger perspective because we see this double standard uh, based on race frequently. Um, What impact can it have when a sitting senator voices that a violent mob threatening to hang the vice president were people who love this country, but Black Lives Matter protesters were cause for concern. Like to Michael's point, we cannot we cannot conflate these two groups. How how do you think this will filter out to other people?
2: I think that when you look at this, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to make the case that the white supremacy uh, strain or theme, is becoming a much larger one within the Republican Party. And I think that when people are trying to understand why have they gone all in with yeah. defending the January Six riots when that seems so out of step with the American people, I think there are a couple of political realities that we need to keep in mind. One, they're looking ahead to midterms. Yeah. Um, yeah. These members of Congress, I mean, there's probably a pretty good reason when you look at it that some of the Republican members of Congress, unlike Republican senators, are really becoming the loud voices of this kind of insanity. Louis Gohmert, uh, Paul Gostar, um of course, you have people like Ron Johnson, who many, many people think will not run again. But you do have many, many members who are Republican members who are looking forward to redistricting uh, overseen by Republican legislatures in their home states that will secure their their next 10 years in yep. Congress.
1: Artificially have, draw their own power. Right. Yep.
2: You have people like Louie Gohmert, who, people who won last term by like 70 some percent. And so. When Ron Johnson says something like that, I think a lot of people think, well, he said, I'm gonna say this qua you know, this is gonna get me in trouble. That wasn't a mistake, (laughs) right? He knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew why. He knew what he was doing, because then the narrative becomes to his people, to his supporters around the country, he's being attacked and he's just saying the thing that we all believe because we, you know, Republican rank and file voters believe that black people are violent thugs and white people are patriotic, God-fearing, country-loving Americans. And so I think that when you start looking at the things happening around the periphery, you know, for instance, Paul Gosar, the crazy town congressman from Arizona, who during CPAC went across town to speak at the American America First conference, where immediately after delivering remarks to this white supremacist cabal, Nick Fuentes, a just sort of white supremacist, to the stars came on and said that the January 6th riots were awesome, right? Steve King, uh, the, uh, sort of the original white supremacist congressman was just who was defeated a Republican primary last year in Iowa, was there being feted? And so you think th- this is out of step with the American people? But when you look at how people feel, and I bring up the midterms for this reason. Yes, the majority of Americans say that the events of January 6th were terrible and that Donald Trump, Donald Trump's enablers were to blame for it. But the majority of Republicans don't. They, they don't. They do not. They, they are living in an alternate universe in terms of um, what they either are being told or what they want to believe about the events of, of January 6th.
1: So, Susan, I I would love to get your take on something. How do you think we can talk to people who consider themselves Republican or Republican-leaning but don't agree with this idea?
4: I'm going to go back to what Lucy was saying and, and roll right into that. And just to add on to it is don't forget, there's also a huge void right now in the space of Donald Trump not being on Twitter and not speaking an awful lot. So I think we're seeing some of these elected officials either trying to fill that voice for national reasons and filling that void rather or for political reasons to stay in good favor with Donald Trump in case they have a primary or they just want to be in good favor with Donald Trump because they want to be the successor. And just a fair warning to all of them. No one does Donald Trump except Donald Trump. He's the only one who gets away with it. So when we start talking about those Republicans who want, who still believe in their Republican principles that they had when they became Republicans way before Donald Trump, they're lost. And how do you talk to them? I think you have to not take the personality of Donald Trump and the personality and a little bit of the culture out of the political and 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 bring it back to what we are as a society and i think the the biggest thing that uh, i'm focused on right now is you know stopping voter suppression and i think there's a very basic um, argument there similar to how suburban women especially turned on Donald Trump during uh, the time of the protests and he started saying like oh let's just go cut through them like butter and stuff that got them mad because that was adding fuel to the fire I think the idea of people elected officials trying to choose who votes for them <laughs>
1: yeah
4: is offensive and more offensive is saying who can and cannot vote And I think if you take that, there is a that's a that's an issue that can move people and affect them.
1: So on Wednesday, the House passed legislation by a vote of four hundred and thirteen to twelve to award congressional gold medals to U.S. Capitol Police officers and other law enforcement who risked their lives protecting the Capitol on January 6th. And Politico had previously reported, and Susan just alluded to it, that some House Republicans opposed the resolution because they didn't like that the bill calls the Capitol the temple of our American democracy, and because it labels the attackers as a mob of insurrectionists. And also, according to Politico, Texas Republican Congressman Louis Gohmert circulated a competing resolution that omits references to what happened on January 6th and also appears to downplay the sacrifices of officers Sicknick and Jeffrey Smith, plainly stating that they, quote, passed in January of 2021. So to me, the efforts... To rewrite history and gloss over this attack, specifically by members of the very institution that was attacked, is just so beyond the pale, even with the lowest standards we've come to expect from, from some of these Republicans. So, Lucy, what is the ultimate goal of these Republicans and how likely are they to achieve it?
2: Well, I think that their goal is to continue to cons- consolidate power as much as they can among their core constituencies. So, you know, Mike Madrid has talked a lot on this podcast about realignment of of constituencies and that we really have kind of misunderstood, say, the um, Obama-Trump voter, right? But that there really is this reorganization that these Republicans are trying to capture, which is... Um, capturing and the kind of energy of people who feel fearful that this country looks different, this white picket memory of what it was at one time. And so you see this playing out in so many ways beyond just we've talked before about the Venn diagram of of thinking about the reach of something like QAnon versus Trump supporters, that it's actually the reach of these conspiracy theories is actually so much wider than just, like, are you a Republican voter? Are you a Trump voter? So we can think about things like the Mr. Potato Head piece or Dr. Seuss or, you know... um coming after, they're all really concerned about the Grammys now and are so upset about Cardi B as though like the Grammys have always been like this really family-friendly affair. These are all culture wars. So they're going to continue to pursue culture wars. And it does not necessarily, the culture war piece in a moment does not necessarily have perfect overlap electorally. But the idea is to continue to move people around this kind of sphere of fear about our American way of life, even though a lot of us see changes coming that we think this really is the realization of our American ideals. And so I think that because of that, they are, and I I mentioned members of Congress particularly before, because If the Republican Party winds up becoming kind of a regional party, a regional nationalist party, but Louis Gohmert can continue to win by 70 plus percent every cycle, then that's fine for him. And there there are all these individual actors thinking about their individual districts. And so as there's a race to the bottom and a kind of play to the lowest common denominator in terms of morality, decency, (laughs) awareness they're going to continue to do that. So I think that we really make a mistake in thinking that this is part of some grand plan. I mean, when you look at the people running the Republican Party, I mean, it's just a complete clown car of people. I mean, but on an individual level, these Republican members of Congress are going to continue to pursue these ends that look very ugly to a lot of us, but in hopes that they will continue to pick people up based on this culture of fear about the American way of life.
1: Right. Michael, you've been nodding along, and I want to go to you to sort of help us wrap up this topic and put the situation that we're in legally into sort of historical perspective. And what do you think the the, the dangers are that we face if we don't get this history right, and if we don't get the consequences right?
3: I think that um, Isabel Wilkerson in her book, Cast, pretty much nailed it, which is that We have a a caste system in America. We've had it since the outset of our nation. The original sin of of slavery and race has um, continued to inform the way we behave. I think these Republican voters are quite nervous about their standing in a multicultural society, which in, I think, 2034 will not be a majority white society. And I believe that if we don't get this right as a matter of politics and as a matter of law enforcement, then the very fundamental premise of our democracy is um, in danger. And I think that it's incumbent upon all right-thinking people, irrespective of the political party that they belong to, is to to speak the truth of what this is really about, what is going on here. You know, when I hear Gomert, it reminds me of Holocaust deniers, you just can't deny reality, and people have to speak out against that in in very direct terms. It can't be that we just waffle and say, "Oh well, he's Louis Germert and and or he's Jim Jordan, and you know they'll be who they'll be." No, we have to call out and say, "This is who these people are. This is what the dangers of their thinking present to us as a country, and it has to be stopped. So well said.
1: All right, I want to switch now to what's happening at our southern border. So hundreds of thousands of people, including scores of unaccompanied minors, have arrived at or attempted to cross the U.S.-Mexico border in recent weeks. A Homeland Security official told CNN that border agents are encountering 4,000 to 5,000 people daily. And U.S. authorities arrested and encountered more than 100,000 migrants on the border over a four-week period ending March 3rd. There are a multitude of factors playing into the surge of migrants seeking to enter the U.S., including violence and natural disasters and perceptions of a friendlier immigration policy from the new administration. But complicating all of this, of course, is the fact that we're still in the middle of a raging global pandemic. And the Biden administration has allowed unaccompanied children to enter the U.S. while their claims are processed, but that has led to what is being described now as a humanitarian crisis, and we still have kids in cages. So, Susan, first, I want your help breaking down the perceptions of what's happening, because we all remember the 2018 caravan, and I put that in air quotes, which which Fox and company used as a scaremongering tool, which was entirely manufactured. And that is different from what we're seeing now. That mythical caravan only had about 4,000 people by the time it reached the southern Mexico border. And according to Vox, that's roughly equivalent to what border agents are seeing every day right now. But also, in In what ways are conservative media spinning this to fit their existing narratives?
4: Sure. Well, let's first start off with the Biden reaction versus the Trump reaction to unaccompanied minors. Donald Trump sought to imprison them and hold them accountable, like in a legal system, putting a two year old with a lawyer in a court, which is ridiculous, versus the concept of the Biden administration, which is trying to at least do this as humanitarianly, well as possible and get these kids out of these detention centers into better facilities. The issue is immigration for the, for the conservative media. I mean, that's, that's all they have now because the Biden administration passed a COVID relief bill. People are getting checks. The economy, the people are getting vaccinated. There's hope on the economy. The issue that's left for, for conservative media to go after is immigration. It, I just learned this about two hours ago. There's also been a somewhat change in the policy versus what the Biden administration was saying just recently is they are now letting families in from Mexico if they have children under six. So they are not separating the families. And so that is adding to the crisis. Then add Mexico is saying, no, like we're done. We can't, we cannot handle more people. We will let them go. Like we, we just can't handle it anymore. So this has become a, a serious crisis because there, there, they, there is no answers and there's no way this country is going to work for serious immigration reforms. And the problem is there. The Biden administration is very concerned about it. They see right now the the pictures that are coming out from the southern border are going to start eclipsing the tour that Joe Biden is taking on COVID relief. They see that in the news cycle. It's it's not there yet, but when Biden, by the time Biden goes to um, Atlanta on Friday, mark my words, that will be the turning point. And that's what they're going to run with Friday night on conservative media. And I'm going to say, and then, So, and that's where the Republicans are going to go. And unfortunately, they're going to continue to use it as they always have as a photo op to scare people. And it's a fear jacket. That's all they've got going into what Lucy said. They don't want to see those other people coming into the country.
1: And and when you say that that the fact that they're not separating children, six and under from their families is adding to the crisis, what do you mean by that?
4: Well, because those families now are coming in. They had, the Biden administration said they were only letting unaccompanied minors come in. So now they're letting oh, unaccompanied minors and their family members, which is adding to the crisis the in people. that the number of people. Correct. I, it. I, it's obviously the humanitarian right. thing to do, <laughs> yeah. but it is increasing those numbers by a lot.
1: Lucy, can you tie together how all the layers of the border situation uh, have been further compounded by the pandemic?
2: Sure. I mean... I think one thing that Susan alluded to that's important to understand when she talks about the strain on Mexico is that many of these people are not Mexican immigrants. They are from Guatemala. They're from Honduras. They're from El Salvador. So at the point that they get to the border, they have made a very, very long journey. uh, And it is really fraught. (laughs) Certainly, I think, and we saw this kind of rhetoric from Greg Abbott a few weeks ago, this idea that these people who are so sick with COVID, he's, some of these Republican border state governors are suddenly really hyper aware of COVID, which is hilarious, mm. uh, are mm. going to uh, increase the the kind of worries about COVID spreading further, even though many of these people are crossing into states where <laughs> where COVID is raging already. Um, but that has also set up this other kind of side battle where the, The federal government actually is offering aid to states like Texas to facilitate better COVID testing, better kind of care opportunities for people who do test positive for COVID who are in this population. But a lot of those governors, including Greg Abbott, have just rebuffed that because this is another opportunity for a sensationalist Fox story.
1: Yeah. So, Michael, I'd love for you to help us understand what the president's options are here, legally speaking, for what his administration can actually do when thousands of migrants show up at the border. What are their rights? And what is President Biden weighing here from a, from a legal perspective?
3: So it's not legal to enter the United States without Authority to do so. There are ports of entry where you are supposed to enter, and there are mechanisms uh, for which legal immigration occurs. There is a process, which is what is going on here, of asylum, which is people coming to the border and saying, essentially, I am in risk of injury, personal harm, and I have to flee that risk of injury, and come to you and ask uh, asylum. And we've seen that in the history of our country forever and a day. The process has to go forward by which they can assess whether or not these are true asylum seekers or people who are just looking for a, a better economic opportunity, which is not to belittle that um, desire, but, but as an as asylum matter, it's not exactly um, dispositive of, of the result. The problem that Biden administration faces is that because the Trump administration dismantled the asylum process, didn't bring in enough asylum judges, didn't bring enough immigration court officers, they don't have an easy capacity to make assessments of these um, applications. And so they have to warehouse people, terrible word to use next to the next to a person, but they are, in fact, warehousing people in Dallas and in other centers while they try to figure out what to do about this surge. And we have to be clear that this surge has been ongoing for years and years. I think in 2015, we had about 40,000 unaccompanied minors. And in 2019, the last data I saw, there were 76,000 unaccompanied minors. And this is because we have had a horrible foreign policy with respect to Latin and South America. You cannot for a moment turn your eye to the from the fact that these conditions that these people are fleeing from is in no small part the result of u s foreign policy with respect to destabilization of countries that we don't like and or just bad governments that we like and we are supporting that lead to the types of threats that people are fleeing from. So like with race and other things, it's really incumbent upon Congress to come up with a bipartisan comprehensive immigration bill and for Kevin McCarthy to go down to the border for this photo op instead of remaining in Washington to address the comprehensive need for this reform is a sin. So I want to talk
1: about also the political forces that, that President Biden is, is considering and weighing. And Susan, you, you started to get into this already, but do you have any sense about how the delay in the transition uh, might have resulted in, in where we are right now? And what are the other political considerations that he's weighing as, he, as, as you mentioned, he starts on this COVID tour next week?
4: So when it comes to the transition, obviously every agency was hurt because they didn't have the time to get in there to understand where the country was at on certain policies. In this particular case, though, when it came to the immigration crisis, It wasn't I don't think time would have made a huge difference because the only thing that could have happened, nothing could have happened sooner as far as Joe Biden immediately signing some reversals of President Trump's executive orders. So he came out with his own. The 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 thing that they probably weren't aware of and that they found out late that hurt was just how defunded. The operation was that Michael's referring to, that Lucy's referred to, to take in immigrants, to have court, to have the judges, to have them processed and then housed properly. That's what they probably found out late. But there is an argument that has been out there that people started to come or feel they can make it across the border when Joe Biden became president because they felt that it would be more compassionate. At least they would be treated better. Not that they would necessarily come in and be welcome, but they wouldn't be treated as badly um, as President Trump had treated them. But the transition alone, again, they could have been perhaps more prepared to move resources, but they were also very focused and everyone was on on how they were going to handle COVID. Um, They had no idea what to expect from the Trump administration. It was a lot worse than we thought. But politically now, I don't think the administration saw it coming this fast. I don't think they saw this problem for what it was 10 days ago. And there was also an issue, and this may have played into it, on transparency. Because all the ride-alongs with border officials and... um, other uh, taking in press to view some of the facilities that were popular under the Trump administration, um, which is kind of sick in a way. Mm-hmm. But um, because they would like to show it how it cool they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah actually, it actually was grotesque. It was. But then there was also because they at least allowed press, you got to reporters at least got to report from the border and go along and see what some of the problems were with agents. And so now they had suspended those or a great many of them, which got the press very concerned as well, because they felt because like they,
1: couldn't see. they
4: were being screened yeah. off from it. Yeah. So I think that also increased their desire to get, you know, to see what was happening and, and create that environment. But again, it comes down the, to the children, I think is what hurt that touches us as a country. Um all over seeing children mistreated like this. And that that tugs at you and I think it really tugs at Joe Biden, too. I think he sees this and he knows this is unacceptable. This is America. We cannot behave like that. I believe that that's how he is in his being. So I think his reaction is probably um, very stark and very quick in a response than obviously someone like Donald Trump would be.
1: So, Lucy, and then Susan, I'd love your take on this, too, the massive Question here, obviously, as Michael pointed out, is comprehensive immigration reform, and whether or not this crisis is going to bring the uh, the reality to the forefront sufficiently to you know for Congress to summon the political will um, to finally do something about it. So how <laughs> I I I I am afraid to ask this question because I don't know if I'm going to like the answer. How likely is that to happen here?
2: I feel so (laughs) emotional about this issue as a Westerner, as a person who grew up going to school, going to public high school with dreamers who were just as American as I was, you know, as a person who lived in Arizona during some of the most draconian immigration legislation in the country, legislation like SB 1070. There is no question that this is a humanitarian crisis and it is a crisis in part because as we try to make adjustments to our policy at the border, we're creating bad incentives. Um, This must be the moment that we pass comprehensive immigration reform. This should be the the package that the filibuster is broken over Mm. if it needs to be. We are, we just, this is unsustainable. Part of what's happening right now is that we have created terrible, terrible incentives. So I tend to think, I tend to kind of be of the sort of Cato Institute school of thought on this. And they've actually done really interesting and compelling mm. coverage about what's been happening. They came out with a new paper this week about really what exactly is happening with a lot of these unaccompanied minors at the border. But if you kind of envision America as this place where, If you want to come here and work, we want you to come here and work and be a part of our economy. And, you know, I would support a path to citizenship. I'm almost as open borders as you can get. But when you have a scenario where the only way that people can get into the country is by seeking asylum and they're actually like looking for opportunities to be picked up, I mean, there are people being picked up who are thrilled because then they're going to make their asylum cases. The asylum application system is obviously being abused right now. And yeah. of course it is because if we're not giving people other opportunities, what other choice do they have? Cuz the whole and
1: system's it, broken. Right. Yeah.
2: So of course if you are a person who thinks I want to find a better life for my family, you're going to pursue these avenues or you find a way for your child. We have a policy right now of trying to expel as many people as we can at the border, but we have a different policy for unaccompanied minors. Of course, the number of unaccompanied minors coming over at ports of entry is, is, and over the border has gone way up because we're creating incentives. Yeah. <laughs> to, so these are just appalling and gut-wrenching situations to the point where... I think that when you, if we have to keep the drumbeat up about just how bad this is and will it be a perfect package? Probably not. But I do think that there's much more of an opportunity now than there ever has been. There are Republicans who want to be a part of a solution like this, Republicans like Mitt Romney. So I think that if, if breaking the filibuster is on the table, I think you get there. But this is fundamentally about, what kind of country we want to be. So in the in the national dialogue about how to handle immigration across our southern border, we need to get real and stop acting like there are going to be perfect solutions. Can we be certain that people who cross the border who just want to come and work and establish their families in this country, that they will not, you know, benefit from entitlements programs or, you know, no, of course they may, right? There's all kinds of data about how many types of immigrant populations for the first several years, they're a net drain and then they become a net positive. So part of this has to be being honest about those kinds of things and thinking, who are we fundamentally as a people? Are we a people who welcome people in? And we think that some of those economic considerations are secondary, that the safety and well-being of children is very important, that the safety and well-being and that we're going to extend the right to pursue economic liberty to people who want to come here and make an honest living and be you know like proud patriotic americans or are we not and and i think that if we can get real and also eliminate those opportunities for the right-wing media to kind of pigeonhole the moderates and the left by kind of putting them up against the wall over some tough realities then there is much more of an opportunity but i I do think it will take breaking the filibuster.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the, the right wing media problem is that is that it creates such a toxic atmosphere for this conversation, and that's that's what I'm most afraid of. Michael, you you had something to say here.
3: Yeah, I wanted to just add one point, which is from my law enforcement perspective, which is when when Trump essentially tried to close the borders and defund the asylum processes. It's funny, we hear about defunding the police and how a terrible thing it is. Well, he defunded the, the, the border. And that's part of the reason we're in the mess we are in. But you have to understand from a law enforcement perspective, when you shut down legal avenues for entry, when you essentially defund the asylum process, all who are empowered by that are the coyotes, the so-called coyotes who are paid mercenaries to try to smuggle people in across the border. Those are the people who benefit most from bad border policy, because when you don't have a legal or accessible means of entry and you're desperate, you hire people who you pay $10,000 a head for, who try to transport you illegally into the country, often leading to death uh, in the deserts and, and other places. And so we have to be understanding that when you talk about creating a better circumstance at the border, you really are protecting children from abuse by these coyotes and other criminal gangs that, that benefit um, from bad Porter policy. I think you make a really
1: important point, which is that this is a problem of Trump's creation. Because if you don't fund the mechanisms to adequately deal with the surge in, in human beings and people at the border, then it, it's no wonder that we have all of these images splashed across conservative media. And I think that's, that, just, that only reinforces the, the narratives uh, that, that, that they use politically. Susan?
4: Yeah, I actually disagree a little bit when you said that this is a, a result of d- Donald Trump, like the responsibility falls out. Yes, maybe on the interim four year execution of what he d- has done. But immigration has been a longstanding problem in this yeah. country that has we I mean, we, we see things from time to time. Now it's coming up again. That just touches our heart. But I want to go back to something that Lucy talked about with the filibuster and to answer your question about, is it possible to come to a conclusion on or a reconciliation on immigration? The last two pieces of big legislation passed were President Trump's tax cut and Joe Biden's COVID relief plan. Both were done through reconciliation if we're going to see an infrastructure plan, it's going to be done with reconciliation, which means no one's gotten to 60, okay? They're using it because they
1: can't get to 60. Can you briefly, briefly describe what reconciliation means for our listeners?
4: So basically, it's part of the budget process, which only requires a majority of the Senate to approve because it's budget-related, and it kind of of gets folded into that process versus a piece of standalone legislation. Okay. So... um. We've seen that. So that's basically we haven't gotten to 60 in a really long time. And as someone who was upset when um, Majority Leader Reid took away the filibuster on federal judges, certainly McConnell on Supreme Court justices, I have come to realize that. We haven't done anything significant in our country for 25, 30 years. And you know what? That's also because of the filibuster. And I don't see how we get to 60. Yes, we always look to, oh, can we get a couple of Republicans and make it look bipartisan? Hooey, that's not how you're going to get it done now. And we talk about voting rights and other projects that must be number one if you're going to break the filibuster for. I am hard to find what. The f- how the filibuster stays in place. So you know what? We may go back and forth as a 50-50 country. We see legislation passed in one um, administration and it may be revised in the next. But let me tell you something. The things that we're talking about will be very hard to vote against once they're passed. And that's usually the problem when you have, like even the Affordable Care Act. It was hard to find people to vote against it once people had it, so I think if you look at immigration policies, for example, it's going to be very hard to vote against sound immigration policies, which was something that the American public has want. so i we typically kind of look forward to what happens in, you know at the end of the show, but I will say filibuster, filibuster, filibuster
1: meaning we should break it.
4: Um, yeah, I'm at the point where and it's going to be the conversation where everything goes to because with this coming up with the with the surge on the border now becoming so significant, they have to fix it. And if there's only one way to do it, it also allows the administration to go ahead with their other priorities. And that's what happens when you win. Elections have consequences. And you know what? Those consequences will be much greater in four years if the filibuster broken.
1: Oh, that's so right.
4: Because now people's vote, they're not going to say, oh, it's just gridlock. No, things happen. Yep. Because people don't care now because things yep. don't happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Lucy, by the way, we should note that President Biden has uh, expressed his support for returning to the talking filibuster, but he has not expressed any support for getting rid of the filibuster. And and Susan, I, I want to align myself with everything you just said. I totally agree. Lucy, where are you on this?
2: I think that people were so mad at people like Kirsten Cinema a few weeks ago and other democratic members who voted against wa- raising the minimum wage that actually gives democrats more cover to break the filibuster because it's a sign that they're they are not going to vote as a monolith right that you have democratic senators from purple states who are not aligned with Chuck Schumer mm-hmm. right and so in that way that is actually i think a a talking point in the f- in favor of breaking the filibuster. Once once you if you make the assumption to return to immigration that you can get to that point, that you can get to the point of that break. And uh, by the way, Republicans are doing the best job ever of making the case for breaking the filibuster because they can't help themselves because they can't stand to act like they're in the minority, <laughs> which they are. So every time that McConnell gives some statement about things he might be willing to do, like go what the hell are you talking about? You just lost. (laughs) But in terms of immigration, I think that once you have that stage set, and this comes back to the sort of, just sort of demographic and and kind of survey responses that we see of Americans, where most Americans are moving moderate, right? They do take accountability for these things. They do want to see the country move to a kind of moral and humanitarian center. Then you start being able to make the case just of how fundamentally American a push for immigration reform is. I mean, Michael was talking about some of the atrocities that we see because of our broken immigration system. The city of Phoenix is like number two in the world for kidnapping. Phoenix, Arizona, why? Because of cartels, right? It is not that, you know, like suburban white kids are getting kidnapped in Phoenix. It's that there is a huge problem caused by our failure to address comprehensive immigration reform in American cities that are hours and hours from the border. A couple of weeks ago, there was this horrible event where a car, a suburban that had had all the seats ripped out, that had something like dozens of people just trying to cross in Imperial County along the border, was in a car accident that with a with a semi. But because they were all the seats had been ripped out, that virtually all of them died on impact. These are this is the kind of desperation that we're seeing, and these crime, not crimes, but crimes related to it. And also tragedies are happening within the U.S. because of the failure to do something along the border. So I think that the more that we can tell these stories, not as like rogue actors, but as people who are doing a thing that is so and so American, it is so in keeping with sort of the American identity, like whatever I do, I'm going to get up today and do whatever I can to make a better life for my family. I'm going to pursue uh, work. I'm going to pursue safety. Those are all core American values. So th- once the filibuster is broken, that is the kind of messaging that needs to be employed to, to get to something that makes sense.
1: Michael, I saw you nodding. Closing
3: thoughts on this topic? I think the most fundamental piece of legislation before immigration and and other things, is the passage of S-1, H-R-1, which are those bills which will promote democracy through the failure to allow voter suppression for automatic voter registration, for affixed to gerrymandering and other types of things that create the type of divided society in which we live. If we had a society in which congressional districts were drawn Logically, instead of in a gerrymandered place, then the Louis Gomert type districts, and they exist on the democratic side too, would be much less common. And when you have much more purple in the middle, you have the possibility of passing comprehensive legislation. So I'm grateful for the the cinemas, testers, mansions um, in the Democratic Party because but for them those seats would be held by Republicans. And then the Democrats would be in in the minority. And so we have to just figure out a way to get more people sort of like them to get to Lucy and um, your point of the need for a comprehensive immigration solution. All right. Finally, I want to look at a few updates from the
1: offices that are probing Trump's finances and looking into possible election fraud. So Cy Vance, who is the Manhattan district attorney whose office recently won the Supreme Court battle over Trump's tax returns, officially announced he won't be seeking re-election. And this comes just after President Nixon's White House counsel, John Dean, tweeted that he believed Vance's office could issue indictments against Donald & Co., as he put it, in a matter of days, in response to reporting that Michael Cohen had his seventh meeting with the district attorney. And as a quick refresher, Michael Cohen was Trump's personal lawyer and fixer from 2006 until May of 2018 during special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. And Cohen pleaded guilty in August of 2018 to eight counts, including campaign finance violations, tax fraud and bank fraud, and he made the extraordinary claim in court that he violated campaign finance laws at the direction of Trump himself. So Michael, in previous episodes, our listeners have heard a primer on what the Manhattan DA is looking at. Thank you, Susan. Can you dive deeper for us into how Trump and his associates may have allegedly committed financial crimes and also help us understand the significance of both Vance's announcement that he won't seek reelection election and of Cohen's half
3: dozen plus meetings with the DA's office, so it, it's complicated um, because we're 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 guessing um, why Cy Vance has decided not to run. It's a, it's an exhausting job. Anyone who's been in a public prosecutor position knows that these are seven days a week, twenty hour days, and maybe he just wants to do something else. And there'll be there are I think seven or eight candidates who are who are running for his. Uh, re-election uh, for his uh, seat and so I think there'll be no break in 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 that process a- as to the case against Trump co mostly what we hear is that this is a financial crimes investigation that's why the the da's office has hired a third-party financial consulting firm to help analyze the documents and have brought in um, additional people with specialized skills. The thought is that Trump has played around with the values of his property, inflated for one purpose and then deflated when taxes were due on those properties, so you inflate it to get a loan, and then you deflate it when you have to pay taxes on that. You, you cannot do that lawfully uh, in, in most scenarios. And so I think that there's going to be a hard look at whether or not he has engaged in bank fraud and uh, tax fraud in respect of, of his properties and, and the valuations of them. I consider John Dean a friend, a good friend and I love John Dean. However, as a former prosecutor, relying on Michael Cohen as my star witness would make me incredibly nervous because he has all sorts of credibility issues in my estimation. And so I think that the fact that he's been there 7 times is, you know, indicative of something, but as a prosecutor, I'd want to have so much more in the way of documentary evidence as to which Cohen, if he has personal knowledge, can validate. But I would never want to bring a case where Michael Cohen is the alligator, if you will, the the one who makes the allegation and upon whose testimony I have to uh, rely. Just like we saw in the Manafort case, Gates was a very uh, sort of compromised witness and I, I wouldn't have wanted to bring a case on the basis of Gates' testimony alone. You needed uh, a lot more in the way of corroborative evidence, and we haven't seen anything yet um, in the public domain about what is corroborating Cohen. And so uh, I'm not so sanguine that that we have an indictment that's days away it's because Michael Cohen is talking to the DA a lot.
4: I just want to add to that. It's my understanding that one of the reasons why they wanted to see Michael Cohen the last couple of times is they have the documents and to do it, not sitting there with him because he knows how to where where the information is and which pile, if you will. So it made more sense for him to do this in person with the investigators so he could really walk them through the tax records and the documents he submitted um, that that's what makes the difference today having those documents and reviewing them. So I think that's also one of the reasons Cohen went in there is just, you don't want to do that over a zoom call. Mm. It's just too hard. It's not his testimony as much as his ability to know kind of where the skeletons are buried.
3: That's right. Susan, it's, it is a documents based case and individuals can then supplement what the paper says. But if the paper is fraudulent, and someone can explain how it's fraudulent, and the, then the the bankers and the tax authorities can further corroborate that. Then you have the basis to bring a case. It can't flip the other way. Where- yeah, you no. Know,
4: what I was just saying is that there's millions of pages for them to flip, and Michael is just like number fifty-two. Like you know, like <laughs> he just needs to figure out, like to show them where he falsified
3: the records. <laughs> right. He's their pathfinder into yeah. the documents. Exactly.
2: I think that what. What Michael said about Cohen and his credibility is so interesting, because when I've seen some of the comparisons this week between John Dean and Michael Cohen, it is in several articles, it has kind of made me cringe.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and and this happened, of course, after John Dean commented on some of this. But John Dean is, I think, an American hero Uh, Michael Cohen is a person who seems to now trying to be doing the right thing, but is really, really trying to get his pound of flesh. Uh, He wants revenge on Donald Trump. I I reread a Vanity Fair profile of Michael Cohen from December by Emily Jane Fox, and it's really worth reading because it speaks to the Trump operation. And he even admits this, the 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 kool-aid kind of influence of donald trump on these people and so now the blinders are off but it's so personal for michael cohen that it there's there are just years of sort of layers of relationships (laughs) that that i think it's super interesting to hear michael's take as a Legal professional, it 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 could get very messy in a in a courtroom (laughs) with Michael Cohen, (laughs)
4: as everything does.
3: (laughs) That's right. We we saw it in his congressional testimony. He was he was not a coherent witness because, to Lucy's point, he's got so much personal stuff at stake. Whereas John Dean, who I agree is is a hero for calling out what was going on in the White House. He just made a straightforward linear narrative of what he was aware of. And then we got the tapes. It validated everything he said that he was a teller of truth. And the rest is history. That's not the that's not the same narrative or not the same, you know, sort of sp- I guess, through line with Michael Cohen. Right. So Susan,
1: speaking of Cohen's revenge, right? So (laughs) in any other time, uh, a president's longtime lawyer saying under oath in a courtroom that he was directed by the president to commit crimes would have been the story of a century, right? So, but but instead, this wasn't even the story of 2018. What do you make of him turning on the former president, especially when we know... That Trump values loyalty higher than just about anything else, and w- what do you think um what do you think Cohen probably faced? what choices did he face that led him down the path to where he is right now?
4: if you want to know what I think about Michael Cohen, he's a man who said women cannot be raped by their husbands because they're married, so right there you <laughs> you, you lost me forever
1: yep. <laughs> okay,
4: and that happened before the um Donald Trump was president or even looking to seriously run for president. All Michael Cohen has ever done is be out for Michael Cohen. Don't forget, he was also brought in for potential other crimes where he would. And that's why he didn't get Queen for a Day treatment. He was worried about his father in law's taxi business and the medallions and what he was doing to finance them. So he was kind of caught up in something and said, huh, you Instead of that, look what I'm going to give you. (laughs) (laughs) You think this is fraud? Let me tell you about fraud. And I think that's in part what he did to get himself out of a situation that could have led him to far many more years in prison. Michael Cohen is someone who has made his now life story about redeeming himself. I personally don't think that there's enough that he can do to redeem himself for what he's done to this country. He will turn on the president. The president was furious. But you know what? He's also not the only one who the president's gotten mad at. It's some of it's, you know, President Trump turned on so many people so quickly. Now, yes, this was his attorney. But now look again at Rudy Giuliani, who is His former attorney, who is now facing a lot of serious allegations for things he probably did for Donald Trump. This is a habit of what Trump does to the people he works for. He compromises them. He fails to pay them. And then he turns his back on them.
1: So Susan, I also want to get your take on Vance's decision not to seek re-election, because I think it can be easy for those of us who aren't in Manhattan to think about the DA's office through you know, the lens of this investigation. So what are some of the other factors that would have gone into his decision? And what do you, what do you make of that in general? I know we're speculating, but does it matter?
4: I don't read a whole lot into it. I think he's going to be the guy who got the indictment. I think he'll make it through that. As we discussed, I think, last week last week with Mike Madrid, I think there will be a delay tactic used for as long as possible. And I think Cy Vance is like, well, if I run for re-election, I may have to run for re-election again to actually see this thing go to trial. So I think he will be happy with not happy, but satisfied with the indictment. And it is time for him to pass it. Don't forget, Cy Vance has also had a troubled record. Um, yeah. He has not always come home with the big win, So I think, again, taking the indictment and not necessarily have the burden of the way to to go after the president in court <laughs> is something he he won't be too upset with.
1: OK, so let's turn to Fulton County and, and what's happening there. So Fannie Willis, who is the, the newly elected Fulton County District Attorney indicated in letters to top state officials last month she may use Georgia's RICO law, uh, that's the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations law, as she investigates allegations of election fraud against former President Donald Trump and his advisors. And now we know she's hired John Floyd, who is an Atlanta litigator widely considered to be the state's leading RICO authority. Uh, That's according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, there are a lot of ifs here, I think. And it's worth noting that a spokesperson, uh, quote, insisted Floyd was hired as an advisor and not specifically for the Trump case. But if charged and convicted of racketeering, which is a felony, Trump and his associates would face a sentence of up to 20 years imprisonment in Georgia. So, Michael, can you walk us through racketeering, uh, what what it is, what that word means, what has to be demonstrated in order to prove racketeering um, and what Trump's exposure might be under a RICO statute, um, at least vis-a-vis Fulton DA's investigation and and into election
3: fraud. Sure. So RICO was a statute that was passed uh, federally in order to go after organized crime families. And what they wanted to do is to say that the organization, the, the Gambino family or another crime family, was engaged in Multiple types of crime, two or more crimes committed by individuals in the organization for the benefit of the organization. Now, it's been expanded from its origins, and now essentially what it is is sort of a conspiracy among people who've engaged in two or more Crimes. In this case, the possible crimes in Georgia would be solicitation of election fraud, false statements to state and local um, officials, uh, some sort of conspiracy. And so I'd be surprised if they brought a RICO case in in respect of Donald Trump's telephone calls and his associates telephone calls to Georgia to try to find the missing votes Um, But in theory, you can say that Trump had an organization of, of, of people, a cohort, who were engaged in multiple criminal acts to influence the outcome of an election. And therefore, it can be shoehorned into RICO. And RICO, of course, is a statute that carries very hefty penalties, um, 20 years under the federal statute and $25,000 or more times the pecuniary gain. But I think, like in most of the cases that, that come up, the best way to proceed is with the most straightforward, provable crime, and that it gets you what you need. Look, no, no one needs, it seems to me, from a law enforcement perspective. No one needs 20 years in prison for Rudy Giuliani or former President Trump or anybody else. What they need is a conviction, period, a, 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 a mark on the permanent record that this person committed a a serious crime, a felony. After that, everything else is, is secondary. I, I wouldn't actually like to see Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani necessarily in jail, but if they did engage in criminal Acts that are provable, that they should be forced to carry that scarlet letter of of of, of being a felony. So, as I said, I, I in the Antifa prosecutions and the in the January six prosecutions in the Fulton County, I think simplest is best to establish if there is a crime, what that crime was, prove it, and then move forward for the sake of winning the case essentially yeah Yeah. for the sake of of winning the case and 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 making it known that these people especially um the president and his cohort if they committed a crime and it's not clear that they did if they committed a crime that they can be convicted of that crime the what i'm trying to say is that the the sentencing aspect of it is quite sec in my estimation quite secondary to the conviction
1: i see Okay, so even as these investigations uh, have ramped up Lucy and Susan, we're still seeing Donald Trump hold a tight grip over the Republican party. So how do you think these investigations are going to impact his influence over Republicans over the next four, you know, several years, however however long they take? Are they going to be cheering him on? Are they eventually going to, you know, as they pick up steam, are they going to recognize the wrongdoing? How do you think this is going to impact, you know, his his hold? Lucy?
2: In the case of the Georgia potential for a criminal prosecution in Georgia, and I say this as a layperson, I was interested in, in kind of two components, and Michael really touched on some of these. One is that this is obviously a PR calculation by the Fulton County attorney. I mean, she has said that Floyd has been hired for sort of a a broader advisory purpose. But if they wanted to make it clear that they were not pursuing RICO against Donald Trump, they probably would have just said, that's not something we're looking at, right? And so it goes into something that I think is related to uh, what the approach with kind of the, the Trump cabal as a whole is because and and I understand that they're specifically looking at Georgia's RICO statute and and legal experts have said that the provisions of that may, may make it even harder to bring a RICO case under that state statute. And so but so I thought, well, so what's the move there? And is it to strike fear into the hearts of people like Lindsey Graham and Rudy Giuliani? I, I don't know the answer to that, but it certainly seems to get at this, at least an approach, that forces some of these Republicans to go on the record about what is or is not appropriate. I think that, again, though, that approach and the messaging around this, that is existing in a world where we think that these are sane, rational actors. And so I think that it is actually unlikely to have an impact on their behavior. Their behavior as um, uh, politicians, would-be candidates, um, conservative media, would-be hardcore Trump base and Republican voters, because we're not going to see, for instance, the disavowing of Trump by Republicans that we've seen, say, by Democrats of Andrew Cuomo in recent weeks. There's not going to be a kind of reckoning where it's like, wow, we really need to address this. And you're not going to see suddenly a whole bunch of powerful Republicans come out and say this is unforgivable. You will just see, I think, further and further kind of down the rabbit hole of the cult that this is a politically motivated investigation that he is innocent and that this is just more of what a kind of Jesus sort of figure he is, that he is sacrificing for us. So that's cynical, but I think that's what we'll see.
1: <laughs> Susan last words on this one.
2: Um, I think when it comes to Georgia,
4: his supporters think he won, so he can't be you know found guilty in this case. It doesn't matter what, what happens. And in New York, perhaps if there's some real like you could show that he stole money like taxes isn't going to cut it he's got to do something really bad which i'm not sure if they will or they will not what i think what will influence his voice is how much his lawyers have to tell him to be quiet if he is quiet the, the you know if you notice he's been silent The longer he's silent, the less of a grip he has, because I kind of believe that Donald Trump needs his base more than the base needs him, meaning the base is going to go for whoever gets them. And if Donald Trump's not out there kind of ginning them up, someone else will start to. So I think that's the that's where he kind of loses his his potential Not base, lose it. But it it dissipates because he's not out there speaking.
1: All right. Now that we are Up to speed on the major stories of the week, I just have one more question to close us out, and that is, what stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or our listeners might have missed, but also that will influence our politics in a way we might not be expecting? Lucy, do you want to start?
2: Sure. So as a lot of people know, Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio, has announced that he will not seek re-election, which has meant that it's now open season on the race to the bottom by Republicans vying for Portman's seat. Now. I think that's actually a seat that could easily end up going to a Democrat. It could go to someone like Tim Ryan. But what you're seeing play out on the Republican side is a really, really odd thing. So one of the players is a guy named Josh Mandel, who was the state treasurer, has become kind of like a perennial candidate loser, um, who has cast himself as sort of like America first for the ages, really xenophobic, kind of racist rhetoric. But the more interesting candidate who's emerging is J.D. Vance, who is people may remember was the author of hillbilly elegy really came on the scene a few years ago um and and after writing Hillbilly Elegy, he's a you know came from nothing in Ohio with a sort of very compelling personal story, became a Yale law educated guy. After Hillbilly Elegy, he became a venture capitalist. He was part of a really lauded tour called Rise of the Rest, which was about bringing um, economic activity to these forgotten areas like Ohio and Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And so J.D. Vance had this story that was very much the story of someone who was kind of in the mold of what you would want a free market Republican guy to look like. And during the Trump era, J.D. Vance has taken a very, very different direction. He has shed a lot of that. And he now, this week, $10 million was won by J.D. Vance. Peter Thiel put $10 million into a pack backing Vance. And Vance has really made clear that... In his bid for Senate in Ohio, he is going to pursue an anti-market protectionist bent. So yesterday there was news that the UAW, the United Auto Workers, very powerful union, was sending letters to Ford because Ford has said that they'll be moving a plant Um, in the future for a next gen car to Mexico. And JD Vance, in reacting to this, of course, valid to think about what's the implication for Ohio workers, for American workers. He put out this pronouncement that if American markets want access to American, if American companies want access to American markets, they cannot do this as though he is going to pursue. (laughs) policy (laughs) where we would ban Ford from selling their cars because they put one. They have parts or cars made in Mexico. But it is just so odd. It is like the future of conservative thought leaders. And I give all the background of J.D. Vance. It's a highly educated, Ivy League educated, venture capital, you know, backed uh, Peter Thiel backed guy. These people whose whole shtick has been, you know, generating economic activity, free markets, are now actually protectionist, anti-market people. So it goes to that thing that we've talked about a lot here about the realignment, about Republicans pitting themselves against companies, about that, that who that base of voters is, as both Mike Madrid and Susan have talked about a lot. And so I would encourage everyone to start paying attention to that race in Ohio because it's really revealing some very odd stuff. And I think it will really be ground zero for a lot of what we see in the future of, of Republican messaging over the near term.
1: That's a yeah, very great story. I'm going to be watching
3: that now. Um, Michael, how about you? So I live in the District of Columbia and we are a colony and I am <laughs> keeping my eye on... <laughs>
1: I'm right there with you, Michael. Same.
3: <laughs> our, our license plates, as you know, say yeah. taxation without representation. We're not the empire state or <laughs> uh, something proud like that. Um, and so in the House of Representatives, a bill for D.C. statehood is winding its way. And I think there'll be hear- hearings upcoming and, and perhaps even a, a vote on it. And it'll be very interesting for me, to keep an eye on how statehood um, is pitched as a, as a you know, sort of fundamental right, um, as we talked about earlier with S-1 and H.R. 1, the voting rights bills, D.C. statehood, the um, colony status that we suffer under um, fits into that narrative, and I'm hoping that somehow— all of this, you know, we are in favor of democracy narrative can be woven together. And I should add, Puerto Rico sits in the same situation as the District of Columbia. It'd be nice to have four new uh, senators from those from those colonies. Um, and so that's, that's what I'm keeping on. How is it that we're going to promote democracy? And, you know, you can't not see the types of crimes that asian americans are are suffering and that's part of this narrative and so i'm looking from for biden the biden administration to create a compelling narrative around this it it relates to what we're talking about on the on the border but fundamental democratic rights of which the dc statehood is an integral part terrific susan what do you got for us
4: I am looking forward to Joe Biden's first press conference. Mm. Um, it's, he is the president who's gone the longest without um, holding a press conference since uh, being inaugurated. He'll be at, I believe, sitting at roughly 63 days. Um, and what I... I'm just curious about is how, what he's going to answer his <laughs> answers. I just, I mean, there he is. He's going to have to take the press corps questions. And the press corps is now very frustrated with, with the fact that he hasn't had a press conference. He's answered questions like Andrew Cuomo on the fly. He's talked about, you know, his press secretary's talked about um, the immigration issue. He's going to be faced with a lot of really, really hard questions. And he's going to have to sit there and give Good, solid answers or acceptable answers, I should say. You don't have to agree with them or not. But or at
1: least straightforward. At least yeah.
4: straightforward. He is not going to be able to duck and kind of go in and out. So I'm sure he's going to work very hard to be quite prepared on some of anything he can. But with Joe Biden, you just never know. So
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's
4: what I'm, I'm just curious about his answers.
1: I think, I think that would be really good to watch. Okay. So I just have one thing to mention, which is actually a shout out to Susan's NBC think piece called Rescue California Recall Effort is a Warning to Gavin Newsom's Fellow Governors. But for me, the biggest takeaway here was that fully one third of all Americans are represented by one of these four male, very politically challenged governors. Susan, what's the punchline here?
4: The punchline is, is that the COVID response for one third of our population is in the hands of four governors from Texas, California, New York and Florida, all which are dealing with political issues at one form or another that are very, very distracting. And it just seems unfathomable to me that in a time of crisis, we look at these four governors and say, wow, you're going to have to deliver. So it, it is, and, and it is just when in the bigger picture, think about four men controlling one third of the country. Yeah. On anything.
1: Yeah. Before I let you go, where can everyone find you on the internet? Lucy?
2: I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell.
1: Michael? At Michael Zeldin on Twitter. Susan?
2: Twitter, Percy O S.
1: And I'm at Ron Steslo on Twitter. Susan, Lucy, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. And I want to thank everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have questions or advice for us, or if there's a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode of The Roundup, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. If you learned something in today's episode, make sure to follow or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. It would also help us tremendously if you could rate and review the show because this helps new people find us. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.